All right, Ken Pomeroy on the Pottercast in three, two, one. to this edition of the Pottercast. I'm joined by Ken Pomeroy, the founder and uh, creator of KinPom.com. Ken, thanks for being on the Pottercast. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so this kind of idea came out of the fact, well, number one, I've used KinPom for a long time with what I do as a broadcaster for GCU. And then at that San Diego State game, we got a chance to chat for about six, seven minutes about what you do in KinPom. And there's a lot more to dig into. So I wanted to do that here, but just start off from scratch. Some of our listeners probably don't even know what we're talking about, kinpom.com. How would you explain your site, what you do to somebody who's never heard of it before? Well, it's a site that uh, has a lot of statistics about college basketball. You know, the basis for it is a power rating system that, that rates all 362 teams in Division One men's college basketball. And then uh, people can pay for a subscription, uh, about 22 bucks a year to see um, more detailed data about each team and the players on each team and a bunch of other kind of statistical goodies. So, you know, college basketball is uh, it's a, a large universe and it's hard to keep track of. And uh, my site helps, helps you uh, keep track of it basically. And when did you start this? How, how long have you been doing this? Uh, I started the site, uh, you know, I really started the KenPalm.com in like 2000 or something like that, but it didn't really become focused on college basketball to probably about, 2004 um, the end of the 2004 season is when i got into more advanced statistics and decided to i was rating a bunch of kind of weird sports uh that most people didn't care about and uh, decided to drop all that and just focus on college basketball so i think the modern the modern version of kenpom.com really started in 2004 so going on 20 years old was it hard to find some of these advanced statistics back then or were, were they always just available if you know where to look no, so hard to find. That was the reason I started the site. Really, was that you really couldn't find them. And I would hear people, kind of uh, commentators, you know, talking about uh, certain teams when I would watch games. And you know, I'd wonder, well, you know, is that really true? And uh, you know, I there were people who were kind of into this kind of thing, like you know, really uh, into the points per possession and talking about you know how to kind of better uh, better measure a team's offensive or defensive ability. Um, but nobody really done it for college basketball, or at least not done it regularly. And so, um, so yeah, I was, that's, I mean, it's part of the reason I'm at where I'm at now is that I was, now it's kind of common to think that way for a lot of people, mm -hmm. but I was really the first to do so and kind of got in on the ground floor and had the first site. And so a lot of people, um, you know, started coming to my site for that information. So, so are you like the Bill James of college basketball? Is that kind of the, the that's the only other guy I know who just wanted to get more advanced into the sports. And now everybody said that's crazy. And now everybody uses it. Right. Yeah. I mean, Bill, I think was like more of a, a thought leader or something like that in baseball as opposed to <laughs> yeah. like a computer programmer. Whereas probably, I mean, I do some writing, but you know, most of my contribution a bit, my contributions have been, you know, producing the website and, and making the data available for other people to kind of comment on. Now. And so you got interested in doing it, but how did you know how to do all that? Were you trained as a programmer? What did you do before Ken Pomp started? Well, yeah, at the time in 2004, I was uh, a meteorologist working for the government and uh, I was I was not really a programmer. I uh, 
um, took programming classes in college, but like was just not interested in it and did poorly in them. Um, but you know, once I, you know, once I developed this interest of really like producing advanced statistics for college basketball, it gave me a, a purpose really to, to learn programming. And I was much more motivated to do so. And, and certainly through my day job as well. Like that's really where I learned a lot of these skills. Like, you know, I'd just be doing something, um, at my job and be like, Hey, this actually, I can use this to, uh, you know, come up with all these advanced stats because obviously you cannot compute these manually on a daily basis. Like it's just physically impossible. And that was the hurdle right. that always bothered me. Like I had a lot of these ideas, you know, a year or two earlier, but I just never, you know, connected all the dots and how I would actually make that kind of more automated and be able to do it, um, you know, on a website that would update frequently. So, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, I was not a programmer by trade, but, uh, definitely learned the skills pretty quickly. And, you know, now over the years, I, I, I know a thing or two about it. Yeah. Would you say most of the people who who subscribe to your site and go really dive deep are are in college basketball? Or are they fans? Have you been able to tell who who's really the main users of this information? Yeah, most of the people are fans. Um, there certainly is like a lot of usage from coaches, uh, you know, people in uh, college basketball uh, media. I mean, there's a lot of people involved there, but, you know, in order to have kind of a more broad customer base and, and support me doing this full time, you know, I, I needed more than that. And so, um, yeah, it's really uh, definitely fans make up the majority of um, my subscribers. What's what's most of the feedback you hear from the fans on your side? Are there certain things like, hey, can you try this? Can you do this? I mean, what what is most of the feedback like? I mean, because I look at it and there is so much information there and you've written some really nice uh, ways for people to read them and figure out what each advanced metric means. But what what do you hear from most of your fans out there that are that are using Kinpom? For most people, there are uh, questions on on how to use things. I mean, I think that's like by far the most frequent thing that I get is uh, you know you get new users. A lot of people that sign up, you know, they don't. When I first started doing this, it was really easy because I had you know for years it was free, and mm -hmm. then one day I said, hey, we're going to start charging for it, and so people kind of knew what they were getting. Um, but now you know it's been over ten years since I've had the paywall, and so people. I try to give them a you know ways to figure out like what they're getting, give them a taste, but it's hard for people to fully understand what they're getting. And so a lot of times they're signing up just because they hear about my name or they hear from you know other people that it's a it's a useful site or whatever, and they sign up and they're you know like you said there are help pages there and there are ways mm -hmm. to find out I think what most of the stuff means, but sometimes it's hard for people. And so I, I do get a lot of questions on hey what does this mean or what does that mean and um. Uh, you know, I try to help people where possible. <laughs> right. We're talking to Ken Pomeroy, creator of kinpom.com. And so I would say if you're listening to this podcast and you're not driving and you have a computer nearby, you should go to kinpom.com and check it out as we're talking about it, because you'll see there's a lot of information here. I mean, when you first open it up, it just ranks. You've got the team's rank, but then you've got everything from, uh, you know, offensive, adjusted offense, adjusted defense, and you give them rankings there. You can go down and look at it uh, by by conference. For somebody just starting out, give us the basics of some of those I guess what you would call basic stats in in this that that they can look at and kind of get a get a good idea of what they're looking at. Right. Yeah. I mean, the basic uh, underpinnings of the ratings are adjusted offense and adjusted defense, which just measure you know the quality of teams' offense and defense based on the points they score or allow for a hundred possessions, and that's adjusted for schedule strength and adjusted for um, when the games are played. Like more recent games get more weight, um, but 
those are the, the two biggest stats. I mean, the biggest stat is like the overall adjusted efficiency margin, which is the difference between adjusted offense and adjusted defense. So better your offense, better your defense, better your rating is going to be. And that's how the teams are ranked. So, you know, it starts there. There's a kind of a hierarchy and th those those things are at the top. And then, you know, if you have a subscription, you can drill down and you kind of see the individual um, or you know the individual team stats uh, that identify, hey, what what does the team do well on offense? What do they not do well? I, I mean, that's the cool thing about especially college basketball is that no team does everything well you know there's <laughs> certain right every right. teams have you know the even the best teams like they have strengths definitely and they're good at a lot of things but they're not good at everything they have weaknesses and, and you can kind of see that when you drill down but uh but the adjusted offense and adjusted defense are, are the most important things yeah it's interesting too because sometimes you look at it and you go oh houston you know number one ranked team right now on on, on kenpom.com with their adjusted uh um margin there 18 on offense, one on defense. Um, but then you see like 319 on adjusted tempo, you know, and like their shrink the schedule seems to be a little bit lower. How how does all that stuff, how do you factor all that in um to have them ranked like number one? And I think in net they're in the top five as well. So, you know, it's it's it doesn't always match up with the net rankings, but it's it's very it gives you a good idea and it's very similar. Yes, it's very similar. Uh, and the only thing that goes in the rating is the adjusted offense and adjusted defense. So the adjusted gotcha. tempo is um, just more of a, a style. You know, uh, some, you know there's, you'll find good teams that play up tempo and fast pace, and good teams that play slow tempo, and, and vice versa. There's bad teams that do both as well. So it's really just, hey, you know, I think my team plays really up tempo. Let's check it out. And then you find out, you know, they're 54th in, in adjusted <laughs> right. tempo or something. It's like, well, they're yeah, they play up tempo, but they're not like you know exceptional or anything like that. I mean, it's really. A, you know, a lot of the stats, I think, are good reality checks sometimes on um, perceptions that people have about teams and, and mm -hmm. adjusted tempo is that way. But it, does, it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't go into the ratings at all. And even the schedule strength, it's hard to describe. Like, schedule strength doesn't necessarily go into the ratings. Like, you can play a poor schedule and still be rated well. It, uh, you know, the schedule strength kind of falls out of the ratings almost. It's like, okay, once we have all the ratings figured out, who's good, who's bad, now we can go back and look at your schedule and figure out, hey, was your schedule good? Was your schedule bad? And that's where the schedule strength uh, comes into play. Yeah, it's interesting. Based on the adjusted, you know, the the margin there. I mean, of the top ten teams, like only seven of them are have um, you know good rankings in tempo. A lot of them are low in the tempo, but they have a great margin of of between their off adjusted offense and adjusted defense. Yeah, you do tend to see that good defensive teams tend to use up a lot of the shot clock defensively, and so that will slow down a team's tempo offense i think is more mixed but certainly defensively you don't find a lot of teams that have like short possessions and are, are good defensively there are a few but for the most part if you have longer percent uh, possessions defensively it tends to mean you're a better defensive team and uh that tends to slow down your your overall possession count during the game when you go on here and you look at everything you've got um how would you define i mean what if there's one thing on here that tells you which team is the best team in the country right now. Is it just that 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 margin or would you look at another statistic to say ah this team's really good they might not be as high in the margin you think but these guys are going to be tough to beat. Yeah, it is it is the adjusted efficiency margin. Um so the system doesn't really care too much well it doesn't really care at all about how you score your points or how you uh defend, you know, as long as you're not allowing points. Uh, it doesn't really care how you get there as long as you get there. And uh the the adjusted efficiency margin just kind of falls out of that. So you know, certainly if you want to know more about a team on a granular level and like how they play and what they're good at and what they're not good at, you have to dive deeper than that. But if you just want to know about their overall ability, the adjusted efficiency margin is is the best description of that. And 
you know, we should point out there, you know, this is one measurement. There's not like, it's not super precise. It's hard to know exactly mm -hmm. how good a college basketball team is at any given moment. Um, so just because a team, one team is ranked 35th and another is ranked 36th doesn't mean the system has a strong opinion that the 35th ranked team is better. That's, you know, it's basically saying those teams are, are approximately the same. So, um, so the tool is, uh, not super precise as any tool trying to rank college basketball teams would be, but, um, but it does get teams, I think, do a good job of putting them in the in the correct neighborhood. We'll come back to some more of these statistics because they're very interesting to me. But how did you, I mean, were you always interested in this type of stuff as a kid growing up in statistics and sports? Yeah, I, I loved uh, I loved the box score. Uh, I loved <laughs> all the numbers in it. You know, I just generally growing up was better at math than I was at reading. You know, I didn't really love reading books you know we had an assignment to read shakespeare or something like that i really struggled to uh get into that but when it came to solving equations and stuff like that um i definitely took to that more easily i i don't know why it, maybe it's a shorter attention span or whatever you know or the fact that there's like a right answer whereas with the reading stuff a lot of times there's interpretation um but i definitely was more interested in math growing up and sports big big interest oh, yeah. from the get-go what i mean just mainly basketball or all sports oh pretty much all sports i mean i was the you know the big three type of guy basketball baseball football growing up mm -hmm. i think basketball and baseball more so than football uh and as time went on i think it was really like you know baseball is mostly played in the summer when you know you don't have school and so you can follow it really closely and basketball harder to follow during the school year a lot of games on weeknights which you know weren't my parents just didn't let me sit and, and watch college hoops every night um so that be, that was a problem but you know once i got out of college uh and i could you know watch tv whenever i wanted and i, <laughs> I ended up you know just i just like basketball as a sport more than baseball and so over the years i'm just kind of i have more focus basically on one sport and i you know if you ask me questions about baseball or football at this point i'm not going to be very knowledgeable about it but certainly with college basketball that's been kind of my one uh common uh love in sports over the years it's funny you bring up the box score. I don't know if anybody even looks at box scores anymore, but back in the day, that I mean, I would my parents would say, my you were in Kansas City, big Royals fan. I'd have to wake up in the morning and get the Kansas City Star, look at the box score. Right. And you could kind of once you got to know what you're looking at, you kind of almost recreate the game just by looking at that box score with basic statistics. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, I love looking at box scores too, you know. Uh, no question. And whether it's baseball or basketball, um, yeah, they really just it was it was fun looking at them in the in the morning, seeing the scores, seeing who scored the most points or whatever. I always tell the story like, you know, Hubert Davis now in North Carolina. But I remember when he was a player in high school it, where I was growing up in Northern Virginia, you know, in the first year of the three point line, he was in high school. And I would I was fascinated by three pointers. And then and then the high school box scores we had in the paper, they wouldn't show much information, but they did show like who who had the most made, you know, who had the made three pointers in the game. And like Hubert Davis was like always making the most <laughs> three pointers back then. And uh um it just stuck with me for some reason yeah just that's how how, how much I, I looked at box scores but uh anyway that's uh yeah just uh you know an obscure fact that uh for whatever <laughs> reason i i remember yeah well i remember uh we had i don't even remember what grade i was in but like i said i grew up in missouri and we had to do some an explanatory speech you know and we had to come up with the topic and explain it so i took the the latest kansas city royals you know box score 
and reconstruct it on a big piece of poster board. Like this tells you how old I am, right? And then I, for the class, I explained how to read a box score and stuff. And everybody's eyes were just glazed over. I thought it was the most fascinating thing in the world. Nobody else thought it was that exciting, but I had a good time with it. <laughs> that, that sounds awesome. I, uh, <laughs> I know if talk. I have that poster board somewhere, I got to find my parents. Like I'm sure it got trashed somewhere, but I would imagine George Brett had a few hits and, you know, drove in a few runs more than likely. Um, well, you know, talking about box score though, and, 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 talking about like the stat sheet we get uh at the ball games you know halftime every time out they run over the statutes i asked you this question um during our our brief interview but i I was interested in your response what stat just real stat um i shouldn't say real stat basic stat right like that is on that box score do you find most interesting if that's all you had to look at right and i i gave you a bad answer because i i I gave you something that actually isn't on the box score but that you can kind of figure That's out. What I'd expect, Ken. I'd expect <laughs> that from you. Kind of, kind of figure out fairly easily, and uh, and that is two point percentage, which should be on the box score. I don't know why it's not, um, but two point percentage is 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 much more consistent from game to game than three point percentage. Um, three point percentage is pretty volatile, and uh, you know sometimes can be fool's gold. You have a great shooting night, you feel like you're on top of the world, and most teams win when they have a great shooting night. But you can't have great shooting nights every night. However. You can you could shoot pretty well on twos on just about every night. Like if you look at the best two point shooting teams, rarely during the season will they have a night where they shoot worse than fifty percent on twos. Um, and it's actually especially early in the season, just a really good gauge. Is the team is this a, you know do we have a, a really good team here? Do we not? Even if we've lost a few games, if you're shooting two pointers well and you're defending two pointers well, like chances are the future is going to be pretty good for you. So um, that is something honestly. I, I, when I see a boxer, I just instinctively go to the field goals, mm-hmm. three-point field goals, subtract them, figure out what the two-point percentage was, because um, sometimes that really tells the story of the game more than three-point shooting does. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because just like as you were a kid, you know, and the three-point line came out, it's it's very exciting. It's infatuating, you know, how well. And the game's almost kind of, it seems like it's turned into, we'll just shoot a bunch of threes, you know. So it is interesting that that statistic, uh, as you say, it is more um, it, it's going to play out over the course of a season, probably more so in a game to game basis than the three point statistic is, especially defensively. Like so people do, you know, three point shot is important. No question about it. But if you cannot defend two pointers, if you can't defend the paint, there's really not much incentive for the defense to take threes like they're taking threes because it's a lot of times it's hard to get easy shots at the rim. But the best value in basketball always will be, you know, layups, dunks at the rim, you know, getting fouled. And uh, as a defense, if you can't stop that, teams are going to take advantage of you. So the, the bottom line is it's really hard to have a good defense unless you have good two-point defense. And uh, I think that is just always going to be true. Yeah, it's interesting as you played out. Like I said, I, I broadcast for Grand Canyon University. And last year we had uh, three guys who their career average was 40-plus percent from behind the three. They could really stroke the three, right? This year we don't. But we have a lot of guys who drive to the rim, and now we average 31 free throws a game, you know? So, and, and we're much more, it feels like this team, and and you could argue they've got better athletes and all this stuff, but it seems like they're a lot more consistent from game to game. And when they need to put their head down and go to the rim, they do. And then they come back in games they were behind in. That's a great point. Uh, so yeah, so two-point offense is, you know, as we've discussed, you're more consistent than three-point offense. So, you know, you can have great teams that, that uh, have great shooters and teams that won national titles, you know, shooting a, a very heavy diet from the three-point line. And so uh, it's not to say that uh, there's one preferred over the other, but 
yes, you will find teams that depend less on the three point shot tend to be more consistent with their offense. And that could be good and bad. Like if you're, if you have players that can score and get to the rim, it's great. If you don't have those players, you're mm-hmm. going to be, you know, in trouble for the rest of the year. Yeah. We like to always say we're, we're not only getting to the rim, or to the free throw line a lot, we're getting the right guys to the free throw line a lot because they're all Absolutely. shooting like 75 plus percent. Those are the guys you want as opposed to your big center who might be shooting like 45%, right? <laughs> of course. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Explain to me luck. You have, a, you have a rating for luck. And right now, Indiana is the luckiest team in the country at a plus 0.242. Right. Luck. Okay. So can you explain luck? <laughs> well, I can explain how it's calculated on the site. Okay. Okay. And uh, yeah. Uh, so basically, the idea is you know, if you play a close game, the outcome of that game is often determined by it's determined by things that your team does, but it's often determined by things that are out of your team's control as well. You know, you think about a game that comes down to the final possession, uh, you know, you can draw up a great play and the other team can draw up a great defense and, uh, you know, maybe just deny you a, a shot or whatever. Or even if you drop a great play and get an open three, that open three is still, you know, going in at best 50 percent of the time. So some luck involved there. We can talk about officiating. You know, certainly there are cases mm-hmm. where. Officials make a judgment call uh, in your favor or against your favor, and uh, you may disagree with it or whatever, and there's some luck there. So in close games, there's, uh, you know, a one-possession game. There's a lot of things outside of your control that affect the outcome. Uh, by contrast, you know, in a game you win by 20, not a lot of luck involved in that game. Like, you rightfully deserve to win that game, and same thing for games you might lose by 20. So so the luck statistic on the site looks at at that, essentially. Like, how many of your games were close? How many of your games were not close? If you played a lot of close games, did you did you win all those games? Like if you play 10 one possession games and you win 10 one possession games, that's we want to believe that's clutch. We want to believe there's something intrinsic mm-hmm. in the team that you can just go to every time. You know, if it's a close game, we're gonna win it. But realistically, the game doesn't work that way. And you were probably lucky to win it, you know, three or four of those games. So um, so the Lux statistic is looking at things in those terms. And if you have won a lot of close games and if your losses were lopsided, it's gonna look at your team as being somewhat lucky and maybe winning, you know, mm. more games than you normally should have. Is that as, as simple as comparing wins in close games versus, it's probably not this simple, versus losses in big, big, you know, big, bad losses? It's it's about as simple as that. Um, okay. You know, obviously there's a spectrum there. Like, sure. Like I said, winning by 20, you probably deserved it. Winning by 10, you know, you mostly deserved it. Winning by five, well, you know. <laughs> you deserved it, but you, three or four whistles go a different way. Maybe you would have lost, and you know, obviously, right. you win by one or two or whatever. It's you know, it's really getting closer to a coin flip. So it's just you know, every game is is treated as its own thing. But yeah, you're right. That's basically how it works. Yeah, it's fun to to hear what you're talking about and then apply it like to Grand Canyon. Like I said, I follow them, so I know them better than any other team in the country, probably. And you know, just down at Liberty in a five point win and. Uh, you know, it felt like the Lopes were in control down the stretch because the other team was tiring out. But as your point said, there was a couple foul calls, a couple open threes that they missed down the stretch that easily could have turned the game. Maybe not maybe not a win for Liberty, but down that stretch, there were a few key plays that uh, that went the Lopes way, whether it's I mean, they deserved it or whatever. But it still kind of has that luck component to it down the stretch when you're two really evenly matched teams. That's how I that's kind of how I watch basketball, Michael, a lot of times, I look at, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I look. I look for those things in close games. You know what? What could have happened differently? Yeah, I mean, college basketball is. I mean, that's what makes it great. Is that, uh, you know, 
it's so many games are so competitive and could go either way. And uh, one or two plays made by a player can change the outcome of a game. And I, you know, the NCAA tournament is really the the best uh, place for that. I mean, we talk about, you know, I mean, Florida Atlantic last year was really that story where they go to the final four. Um, and in their first game, you know, they went a one point game where there was a, right. you know, a, a missed call late that, you know, honestly probably wouldn't get called most of the time, but maybe gets called some of the time. And had it been called, they would have lost the game, but didn't get called. So they kept the ball and then they made, you know, a, a shot at the buzzer essentially to win the game, which again, a shot that maybe they don't make all the time, but they made it that time. And, you know, that propelled them on to a, a great story where they, you know, from that point on, one you know uh, maybe didn't win their games convincingly but certainly um won their games more you know more convincingly than they did in that mm -hmm. first round and uh you know people say hey well what if they lost that game you know you wouldn't know how good they are and they wouldn't be ranked well you know it turns out they're they're probably pretty good and we got those extra games and now we know they're pretty good and uh but we wouldn't have known that had they had they lost that first game which you know any number of things could have changed and they would have lost that that opening round game to memphis yeah i'm always interested in in I, you know, you, you, you call it luck here in the thing, and that's probably a good word for it. I, I, you know, I grew up, you know, a Chiefs fan. We're, we're really good. Well, we were really good until the last, I don't know, six games. Um, but, you know, always thinking, man, that Tom Brady, the, there's the luckiest guys in the world and they get all the breaks. But I have to admit, whenever they got a break, they took advantage of that break, you know? And so that luck component is obviously there in every sport at all times. And maybe the good teams take more advantage than the bad teams. I don't know. It feels like that. And I want to kind of believe that as a fan. <laughs> right. It's a good, uh, it's a good point there that we, you know, you could call it something besides luck. I could call it like, you know, randomness or something like that. Maybe it would be less offensive. That sounds like more of a statistical term, right? <laughs> it does. It's just really hard to put it on the top of a column. You know, like randomness is just a lot more. Space. Nobody would click on it. They'd be like, I don't know what that means. I'm not clicking yeah, on it. Yeah, it takes up a lot more space than luck. So <laughs> luck is just concise and brief. And, it, you know, all the stuff that I identify as luck may, might not be luck. I mean, like you say, the more you say, the more you see players perform well in clutch situations and come through, the less you're inclined to think it's luck. And that's totally fair. And I would never say that all of that is luck. Um, but at the same time, you know, we'd be fooling ourselves if we think that every outcome of a game is the just and proper outcome and, uh, you know, demonstrative of like what is going to happen if those two teams matched up in the future. Uh, that's, I guess, that's my my thesis yeah. on, on luck. No, I think it's great. It's funny, too, because as a, as from a fan's perspective, you know, you always try to defend what you think about your team. You find the stats that prove what you want to believe about your team. And you, you trumpet those like yeah. Tarleton state is playing great. They're number two in the WAC resume seating, which we'll talk about later here in the Western athletic conference, but we're scratching heads going, are they really that good? Well, they're number three in the luck rating. So now I can say, well, yeah, they're, they're good, but they've had some help too. <laughs> right. Right. And the seating system does not care how you win the games. It just gives you credit for wins. Whereas in the Ken bomb ratings, it cares about, it doesn't really care about how you winning the games. It cares about scoring margin and, and who you play mm -hmm. and so um so oftentimes you know you'll see the differences in like ken palm ratings between national perception is often you can see it in the luck department if a team has been unlucky they're probably rated higher in my system than they are in national perception because national perception is going to look at a team that loses a bunch of close games and say hey you know they deserve to lose those games they're not good late in the game right and my system's like well you know they deserve to lose some of those games but not all of them and they're probably a little bit better than their their record shows well, that makes more sense. I know the adjusted uh, margin is is just between offense and defense, but you know, you look at the Tarleton State's a great one, right? Billy Gillespie's team down there in Texas. I mean, they're eight and two, 
but they're a 173 in Ken Palm because uh, they're a minus 0.65. So they've just had, I mean, they've had a lot of very close games because you look at it. I mean, they're, they're scoring 103.3 and they're giving up 103.9. Right. And so they're eight and two, but they played three, three games against non D one opponents. So they're really five and two in the eyes of the system. Cause it doesn't care what you're doing as non D one teams. And so, so that schedule strength comes into play as well. Like, Hey, you know, not just, not just scoring margin, but adjusting that scoring margin for who you played and where you played them. And once you do that, you know, find out that a lot of teams are going to be uh, rated maybe a little bit differently than their record might indicate. So in, in the Ken Palm rankings, you throw out uh, non-D1 opponents? Yes. Yep. Okay. No, non-D1 opponents, the only thing that non-D1 opponents show up in is the record. Because people, you know, people do, I think universally, that when they look in the, wherever they look, they're going to see Tarleton State's 8-2. and two, So I want to be consistent with that. But everything else, player stats, team stats, does the non D one games are completely ignored? Well, I've, I've I've I call a lot of non D one games, and when you have a really good team, non D one games are pretty dreadful to call. They they're fun for a while as you're pounding, but the last fifteen minutes, you're like, can we just have a running clock? Can we just get done with this thing? You know, because it's just overmatched. I want to ask you one more question about the 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 Ken Palm, um, and I might have more later, but and then I want to get to the uh, Western Athletic Conference resume seating because you've done a, a really cool thing in conjunction with the WAC on that, but. You're, how do you come up with your official rankings? I, I didn't even know you had this. And then Josh Hauser, geez, you said, oh, yeah, he's got these ref rankings. And oh. uh, yeah. And so how do you come up with the ref rankings? Great. I love talking about refs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. I, my, my claim to fame is I have officiated one college basketball game in my life. So uh, so I have. Nice. Uh, yeah, I have worn the stripes. Uh, it's one more than me. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. When I mean, when people, when I criticize the refs and people are like, you know, you should referee a game. Well, I, I've done that actually. So, um, <laughs> nice. so I, and I understand it's a super difficult job, by the way. But absolutely. Um, so the officiating rankings are based on, they're not based on how necessarily how good the officials are, because I have no way of knowing that. Uh, I'm not watching these games and grading officials, but what I am doing is taking uh, the officials and the games that they've worked. And looking at the quality of those matchups and um, then producing like basically an average of the quality of the matchup that these officials work, assuming that, you know, the, the better officials are going to work better matchups. Is it an assumption that holds true in every league, everywhere, every night? Not necessarily. But I think logically, better officials are going to work better games. And so that's where the officiating ratings come from. Basically, hey, how many games did you work against? you know, with quality matchups, these are probably the best officials. And so, you know, on the site, if you, you know, you know, the officials that are working your game on a particular night, especially, you know, I do find that broadcasters tend to use it a lot. It's, you know, kind of a handy reference for them. It's like, Hey, you know, are these officials any good? Do I have a, an obscure official tonight? Because, you know, there's 180 games on the schedule and, you know, those were like 50th on the priority list. Like, you know, that can happen. And then you can also figure out, Hey, where was, you know, how many times has your official worked your team this year? Or where did they work last night or, or things like that, which I think are, you know, pretty useful things to to pass on to uh, people watching the game. And you rank down to uh, 200 because there's times when I'm looking and I'm like, okay, this guy's not on the rankings. This is no bueno for, for, for what we're going to see here tonight. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I, uh, I rank them all. All right. I don't, yeah. I, I track them all. I guess I only publish the top 200. It's just there like, how, how deep do you want to go with some of these guys? Cause once you get down to 200, it's like, you know, you're talking about guys that are, working you know once a week and maybe a lower level league and you're right uh, you're, you're, you're you know you're kind of scraping the the bottom of the barrel a little bit at that point 
or they officiated a game at UTRGV. I'm sorry. I said that a lot. I'm sorry. I said that a lot. <laughs> um, hey, but I tell you, I think your rankings are really good in the officials because the the best game, one of the best games I've ever seen officiated was uh, GCU hosting Northern Arizona. Just the way they allowed the teams to be physical because I'm older and I love that physical play, but they also a lot, they controlled the physicality and and it was the same the entire game. I thought it was very well officiated. And it was Keith Kimball, who's number one in your rankings, Kip Kissinger, who's number nine, and Brooke Wells, who's number 11. So when I see those guys, I'm like, okay, we've had Brooke Wells a couple other times. We haven't had Kip or or um, or uh, Keith again. But both of those times, I'm like, uh, three times, I think, for Brooke, he's been really good. It's been a really good ball game. Yeah, I think Brooks was working that game, uh, San Diego State game that I was at. And, he was. Uh, yeah, I think both him and Keith Kimball have worked just about, I think they, uh, last time I checked, at least when I checked that night, they'd worked every night of the college basketball season except for one. So that, that's the other thing, you know, the other interesting thing that comes out of this is you find the guys that just work ridiculous schedules. And, and Keith Kimball in particular has been doing that for the last few years now. Where he just he just works a, a ridiculous schedule, but he's obviously in demand. And uh, he also, you know, fills like Monday nights where there's not a lot of action. I think he, he works like random SWAT games on Monday nights, which is kind of cool because mm. he's willing to go down and like work a lower level uh, when he needs to. So um, anyway, you do find at the end of the year when they announce the officials for the final four, you know, they, I think they announced 10 and there's three that work each game and there's one alternate. Um, you'll find that like those 10 officials are all ranked in like the top 20 in my officiating rating. So it seems like mm. it's pretty consistent with what, yeah. what the NCAA thinks too. The, the eye test, uh, for, for at least for me, has been pretty solid with these guys. And I do look at it as a broadcaster just to kind of get a feel for – it kind of gives you an idea of kind of how you think the game's going to be officiated and then kind of to watch them. It was funny because we were – I was outside interviewing Coach Drew um, just outside the locker room, and all the officials came in just as we finished. And I think uh, they they knew him. They reckon, you know, because they know the coaches. And so they right. chatted and they walked by and he goes, oh, this is a good crew. How do, how do we get these guys? This is a great crew. Well, they had, I think, done ASU one night, us the next night, and then drove down to Tim, uh, Tucson to do U of A the next night. And they all three oh, kept yeah. them together. So we got sandwiched in the middle. And I think our, our head of officials was like, hey, you're here. How about make some money, do another game? And it was a fantastically officiated ball game. Yeah, that's a great uh Great bonus, great bonus, no question. When you get good refs and, and you recognize them, uh, you know, the great refs don't, don't have a perfect track record. They're going to botch some calls and they're going to have games here and there that aren't very good. But um, yeah, for the most part, I think you just feel better when you have very, very experienced refs doing your game. Yeah, and I do, I agree. I mean, I, I get on refs, you know, and fans do all the time. I I, I think it'd be hard pressed of the big four to find a a, a game more difficult to officiate just because of the the speed the athleticism the verticality and the horizontal movement there's only three of them there's 10 guys out there and what is a foul was it i mean my wife asked me after coming to game what's a foul and i'm like eh, what they call <laughs> i i agree with you totally i try to make this point to people i mean I, you know you that's one of the things about working in basketball you understand the fans are always so frustrated with the officials but it's so like in football you have distinct plays the play stops. A lot of things can be reviewed that don't, you know, you can go back and kind of redo things or change the call and it doesn't affect things. In basketball, you know, there's a lot, there's obviously a lot of things that are reviewed now, which I don't think is great. You know, you, you want kind of a free flowing game, but I understand why there's so many things that are reviewed. But when you're calling a game, you have to, you know, if you're calling a foul, you have to call it in real time. You have to call it right now. You can't wait a couple of seconds and let things process in your mind and figure out was a player set or whatever, or was there contact there? Like you have to make that judgment instantaneously for the game to work and just naturally by that process you're going to make mistakes and, and anything in life you have to make a judgment instantaneously on something no matter how much you practice it and how good you get at it there's still going to be a 
you know, an error rate there that uh, is, is pretty high. And so that is uh, kind of the fundamental challenge of officiating basketball. It is a really difficult sport to officiate. Yeah, that's probably the nicest thing I'll say about basketball officials is it's really, really difficult. But when you get good ones, I mean, you might not always agree with their calls, but I, I guess it's just the way they officiate, the way they carry themselves, the way they control, but allow the plays to go, um, what they choose to call it, and their consistency throughout. And when they're in the right positions, they're they're where exactly. they're supposed to be. It's not the guy 30 feet away making the charge call. It's the guy right under the basket making the call. There's nothing worse than, uh, yeah, the official who's out of position. You know, there's a fast break and 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 there's no official ahead of the play, right? The, the players outrun the official or whatever. Like, those are the things that uh, bug me as a spectator watching it. I, I can actually deal with the bad calls. Like I said, some of that is because I officiated. And so mm -hmm. I, uh, I can sympathize and I understand they're just, it's just, you, they're just going to be missed calls, just the way the game has to be yeah. officiated. But if you're out of position, I think the best positions are, but the best officials, like you said, are always in position. They know how to deal with the coaches. They know how to deal with the players in a way that um, allows the game to be, uh, you know, officiated, I guess, in a more preventative way as opposed to, you know, needing to call infractions every time they see an infraction. Yeah, and I joked about the UTRGV game that we did, but it was, I think there were 56, 55 fouls called, and it took two and a half hours, and it just – it it was just a horrible game to play in, to watch, to officiate, to everything because it was right. just so chunky. There was no real. I think the biggest scoring run any team had was like four points because you just couldn't get any rhythm going. And the guys who were able to control it but allow it to kind of breathe and organically be what it is that that that's, that makes basketball fun to watch. No question. I think I would also say this: like obviously those games that have a bunch of fouls, they're no fun to watch. They're no fun to officiate and. The officials, the officials don't want to call. They don't want to call a game like that either. Like sometimes right. people say, well, the officials, this is, a, you know, they're trying to be the story or whatever. But if, sometimes they're just a bunch of fouls. Sometimes the game is super physical and the only way to control it is with fouls, calling fouls. And if the players keep fouling, you know, you sort of have to keep calling fouls or it becomes a wrestling match. So there are some games that I think just naturally get out of control that are kind of unavoidable even if you have the best lend it control. yeah lend themselves to that there's some teams that that's their style they're they're i mean you know i remember uh you know pete carroll seattle seahawks was like they're not going to call pass interference every play so make them call it and they were just mugging guys and you know daring them to call the, the some some people that's how they play defense they're going to get up on you and make the officials make a call yes no question there are yeah there are a few teams i can think of in college basketball right now that, <laughs> yeah. that do that and it's uh sometimes it's very difficult to watch them all right let's talk about the western athletic conference resume seating system so um for the folks that don't know out there uh last year and and initially a lot of us thought it was just because it was, un it was an unbalanced schedule the wax still said hey if you're if you're in the top uh i think it was 10 last year you make the tournament but then we're going to seed you based on this analytical um kind of a cross between kin palm net whatever and that's going to be the seeding system. And for the most part, it fairly held, but there were a few bumps up and down. Um, I think Seattle, you might have been second, and they dropped down to four, something like that. But but what was the reason, and how did that come about? How did Brian Thornton and his crew reach out to you, and how, why did you guys decide to do that? Well, part of it, I think the motivation was to make sure that the best teams in the conference got the highest seeds in the conference tournament. Um you know, the conference itself, their interest is, uh, you know, they'd love to see conference teams win games in the NCAA tournament. Financially, that has an impact. And you're more likely to do that if you send your best teams to the NCAA tournament. So they wanted to get give their best teams, you know, 
the best seeds in the conference tournament to kind of help them maybe win the conference tournament. Um, so that was, I'd say, the motivation behind it. Um, yeah, Brian Thornton, uh, you know, approached me with this idea, you know, a couple of years ago. I think really the the seeds were planted um, during the 2021 season when I did something similar for the West Coast Conference, um, where Gloria Navarez was the commissioner at the time, and she, uh, well, I guess really the the member schools were almost demanding for a, a system to make things fair that season because there were a lot of conference games that were canceled and that mm-hmm. conference has a wide range of teams with different abilities and so if you played gonzaga twice or didn't play gonzaga twice that really affected the conference standing and so we needed a system to kind of uh, fix that and, and we came up with something and um fast forward to to two years ago where brian thornton approached me about this and um, we came up with a slightly different system because the goals here are a little bit different than they were for the WCC. But the idea is, you know, you get credit for wins and losses based on how difficult it is to beat those teams. You know, we know where a team is ranked in the net. We know how difficult it is when on the home, when at home or on the road. And we can really figure out how difficult it is to, to win each game on your schedule. And so we do that and we come up with a, a number at the end of the season that includes how hard it was to win conference games, which, you know, last year on the unbalanced schedule mattered but also mm-hmm. how hard it is to win non-conference games. And so basically you're evaluated on, on the entire season. Yeah. And it's kind of nice for us too, because we can look at it uh, as it, when it comes out and see the points you got for each win or each loss. And then we can see kind of what the projected points are, you know, moving forward, how much that game could be worth uh, in the future. Um, so remind me if uh, so, like, do, do the points change once you earn them at all, or is that it based on how that team does, how you do? It's still it's it's always changing a bit, right? Yeah, so it's based on on the net rating and you know where the game is played. Obviously, where the game is played is not going to change ever, but the net rating will change, and the points you earn uh, are adjusted based every every day on where a team is in the net rating. So for the most part, you know the the reward you get is not going to change very much as the season goes on, but there are some teams who. You know, especially with the early release, of the net things are a little bit wonky. Um, you know, things could change. That the value of wins early in the season could change later in the season. You know, when you get like in February, like mid February or something, when there's two weeks left in the season, like that's probably only you know going to change by hundreds of a point. You know, in the remaining days of the season, but certainly those wins early in the season might mm-hmm. change as the year goes on. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I, I like you know talking to Commissioner Thornton about it last year as we were getting ready to do some Western Athletic Conference uh, tournament games. You know, talking about we want to get the seating correct so we can have our best teams, you know, advance. But also, it's a it it helps us with a good kind of metric to make our case and state our case when t- a team does get in or a team is on the board or maybe because every conference wants to get multiple bids, right? And typically, the WAC is a one bid league. It helps us make our case to the committee, and it also helps us make our case for the team that wins to be a higher seed because we can go back and kind of show, um, you know, those early games that sometimes people forget about. Right, for sure. I think, yeah, this is a, you know, my dream, Michael, is that someday the NCAA tournament would use a system like this. Um, and I think they don't at all, huh? They don't. I mean, they, they, they use the net. They say they use a bunch of stuff, but they they use the net and they, you know, they use the the quadrants. Yeah. To me, I mean, the NCAA tournament selection process is a, a process that is very difficult for humans to, uh, to do accurately you know you're just every year you know there's just so much information they have to sort through it's just a very difficult job for for people to do to say hey you know this team should get in over that team or whatever based on well you know they beat 
this team then, or they had a four yeah. two record in quad one, but three of those games were on the road or whatever. Like there's just, it's just an impossible amount of information. And the WAC resume seeding system basically takes all the information and compares it in an objective way, compares it the same way for every team. And, you know, gives you a, I think a very accurate look at, at how good a team season was. So do you think it could be as simple as the NCAA just using like an NCAA resume seeding system? And at the end of the year, they know who's in based on who won the conferences and then the other 16, 20, whatever they take at, at large, they just go down the line and see who's ranked next. Absolutely. I, I mean, how amazing would that be? You know, you go down the last week or two of the season. I mean, every fan in the world can see, hey, these are the 10 teams, you know, the five teams that are getting in right now, the five teams that are on the outside. But if my team, who's, you know, two teams outside of an at-large bid gets a win tonight, they're going to jump three teams, you know, because as you said, you know, the values of these games going in. Um, to me, that would be just tremendous content. And I, I get that there's a trade-off where the selection show becomes a little bit anticlimactic because you'd already know who was in, but you're still waiting for the bracket. You still have to put the bracket together. I think that's the, to me, the most interesting part of the selection show itself is seeing the bracket, seeing, you know, which cities teams are going to, or which regions they're going to play in. But yeah, to me, the, just having the seating system there published every single day. So you know, who's in and who's out and what's at stake every single night. I mean, it would just be fantastic, I think. But you'd take away from all these guys sitting in a room and <laughs> arguing and yelling and who knows what they do in there, but yeah. <laughs> you'd yeah, take exactly. away all the, all the poker and everything, you know? I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd be good with that myself. I don't think, <laughs> I don't know what goes on in that room. There's not, <laughs> those conversations aren't recorded every year. You know, we get mysterious things that come out. This team got in, this team didn't. We don't really know why or what was valued or what happened there and this would just be way more transparent, which I think for something yeah. where the stakes are this high, like that should be something that, that every fan would want. And then they draw the straws and, and they nominate somebody to walk out and they put a camera in front of them and explain why they did what they did. So one person explains for right. everybody and it right. does really feel like there's no account. I mean, look, it's fun. It's exciting. And for the most part, it seems like they get a lot of stuff fairly right. But right. It, it, it is, does kind of seem weird that there's, there's zero uh, accountability. For some of these, it's just one guy explaining, well, this is why we did it. And it's like, right. Mm, okay. Well, one guy's explaining it and he's trying to explain for what, you know, nine other people did in the room. And it's possible they're not even having conversations, right? Like the person that comes out of the room and is a spokesperson, you know, the head of the committee or whatever, yeah. uh, doesn't exactly know why other people made those choices. And right. they have to like kind of, you know, speak in generalities and things that, you know, aren't terribly interesting i think so yeah anyway is, is the word uh, on that michael yeah no are any other conferences using a seating system kind of like this nobody nobody else has, has taken the bait i mean i've i've had you know certainly when i was doing the work for the wcc i had other leagues some, some power conferences that were interested in doing something like that that season because there were of all the cancellations and the unbound yeah. schedule and things like that but no one's taken the bait on the seeding system. I mean, I think it's just a mat. Like, I really think it's great for mid-majors. I can understand why power leagues wouldn't wouldn't need it. They get multiple bids, and there's not much point for it. But um, but certainly teams that are expecting to get one bid most years, I think it's great. And also just adds, like, more meaning to the non-conference schedule, you know? When yeah. Grand Canyon beats San Diego State, like, it's not just an upset win. It's kind of fun. It's like you know, this matters in the conference standings. Like this is, this is going to help us achieve our goal of getting a one seed in the conference tournament. Um, and to me, no other conference has that, you know, there's a lot of non-conference games out there that are, they're fun. I, mean, I love watching basketball games, but in the end, the outcomes are just 
meaningless because they don't matter in the conference standings and those teams aren't going to get an at-large bid. So it doesn't really matter for their resume either. So to me, that's kind of like a, a, a hidden bonus of all that. Yeah, I mean, you look at Grand Canyon and the resume seedings right now is 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 vastly ahead of Tarleton State. And you look at, you know, you get you get a, a either a one or a minus one all the way in there but for wins and losses. And I mean, they got a 0.77 as of right now for San Francisco, a 0.76 for San Diego State and a 0.83 for Liberty. I mean, you've amassed a few wins against teams like that and you really put yourself in a good position the rest of the way. Grand Canyon, yeah, they're in a unique situation where they they actually could, you know, not in the conference win loss standings, they could be worse than Tarleton State and actually still get the top seed in the conference tournament, which I think is fair. Like you look at the resumes, like it's no, it's no contest right now. Like Grand Canyon has easily the best resume of any team in the league, and they, in my opinion, I don't see the problem with rewarding them for that when it comes to the the conference tournament. I mean, we have this long tradition of just using conference standings, but um, you know, I think of a team like like Princeton and the Ivy, like they have played great basketball so far. They've been easily the best team in the Ivy, but they're going to get into the Ivy League schedule and it, all that stuff's not going to matter. They're going to play a 14 game schedule. And if they don't win the conference, you know, uh, regular season, they're not going to be the top seed in their conference tournament. And uh, to me, if I was the Ivy League, I'd, I want to reward Princeton for what they've done. I mean, they, they've had one of the best non-conference runs of, a, of an Ivy League team in quite a while. And so to me, why why hit the reset button, you know, in January when the conference schedule starts? I, you can include all these games in a sensible way. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I, I that's why I like, I, I mean, I like Brian Thorne for a lot of reasons. He seems like he's he's forward thinking, he's progressive, he's not afraid of trying things. And if it screws up, he's like, well, we tried it, it's not working, we're going to get rid of it. Um, I wish guys like that would be more involved or be listened to more by the NCAA, but I almost think guys like that don't want to go back to that because of <laughs> work in that environment. But I do like that. And I agree. It's like, yeah, reward the teams. And it it is starting to encourage a lot of people in the Western Athletic Conference, especially as they've kind of changed the format of the tournament where those top two seeds are really important. I mean, you get a top two right. seed and you've got to win two games, just kind of like Gonzaga and St. Mary's have had to do all those years, really protecting them. So guys are starting to schedule a lot better in their non-conference. Right. Yeah. So last year, you know, when they had the 12-team field, uh, you know, the, the one and two seed came down to the final night and people made a lot of it made a big deal about who got the one and the two but it actually really didn't matter in the, in the, the way the tournament was structured what really mattered is who got the four and the five i think seattle maybe ended up getting the four and that really like helped if i'm correct here either seattle or stephen f austin i can't remember who ended up getting it but whoever got it it really helped their their chances of of winning the tournament because they had to play one less game and, and this year yeah. now with the, the double step ladder format where yeah the one and twos basically get a bye to the semis and the three and fours get a bye to the quarters um yeah, the seating, there's definitely more at stake here in terms of where you get seated. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I it would be a very interesting. I, I'm with you. I'd love to see the NCAA just do something that that we all kind of understood what they were doing. But you know, for I think for most mid-major conferences, you go in the year going, hey, if we don't win our tournament, we're not going to the tournament, we're not going to get at large. And we're probably going to get a pretty low seed, even though we might have a resume that should get us more than a 13, 14 seed. Right. I, the one thing I would say, too, is, you know, Brian Thornton, he's mentioned he's a forward thinking guy. Uh, he's also, uh, as far as I know, pretty early in his career, like, you know, someday maybe he'll be the NCAA or maybe he will inspire other people who are just coming up and getting involved in conference administration, uh, you know, to be more outside the box and think about these issues. And, uh, you know, that in my own stuff, in my own work, you know, when I first started, like nobody really understood what I was doing. There was a very limited audience. And then now I'm dealing with coaches who when they were kids, were using my stuff and now they're mm -hmm. coaches and it just comes second nature to them. And I think this kind of thinking 
you know, maybe 10, 20 years from now will be second nature to people who are coming, coming up in the system then. And you get a few of those people in positions of influence in the NCAA. And, and that's how things change. It's, it's obviously going to take a while. It's not going to happen overnight. But, uh, but I'm at least encouraged that we have this one exercise that uh, is taken hold and seems to be um, here to stay, at least as long as, as Brian is in charge of the league. No, what what's next for you? I mean, you're working, you're 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 running the site. Um, you came to the San Diego State game, so I'm assuming you get out to see some games every now and again, or you're yep. on the road quite a bit. Uh, what what's your life like these days? Um, it's uh, it's not super glamorous, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, part of it is just being a you know a fan like everyone else. You know, watching a lot of games, whether it's on TV or or you know going in person. Um, you know, just making sure the site is running, staying on top of trends, doing a little writing, doing interviews, doing podcasts like this. Uh, that's pretty much it for, you know, it's a kind of a routine for the rest of the year. Um, yeah, it's uh, there's not necessarily a lot of direction to it, but it's obviously all anchored to to the game. So uh, so there is, you know, I kind of I kind of have an idea of what I'm doing every day. I just don't know the specifics necessarily. Any thought of expanding? And going to other sports, I like I tried to make my pitch for you to do NCAA Division One baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that I would guess. help me a lot. I would love it. That would be. I mean, it would be great. I, I love. You know, I the one thing I found doing this is when I get invested in, a, you know, when I get invested in a different sport. Like like I mentioned, when I first started doing Ken Palm before I did college basketball, I was rating all sorts of different sports, and like one of the sports I rated was like college lacrosse college hockey and i would follow all these sports really closely because i was you know i wanted to see if the ratings worked and stuff and um that's kind of how i get into sports and i, I love college baseball as well i mean i uh, i would love to get involved in that and, and understand the sport more you know that's the honestly i think the first time somebody's requested that i, I get a lot of requests for college football and for women's basketball mm -hmm. and uh it's just you know men's college basketball is a full-time job in and of itself the data you get is, there's just so much data and all my processes are automated at this point. However, I'm able to like catch errors and things and just look at data and say, well, does this look right or does it not look right? And just, I can fix things so much more quickly and, and prevent kind of embarrassing mistakes from happening on my site, which I couldn't do if I, I did any of these other sports because I just don't follow them with the, you know, the fervor that I do college basketball. So, um, so the time and the, the time needed to do another sport is, is really what prevents me from, uh, from getting into it. Yeah, it makes sense. I I don't I mean I I have no idea how you build this in the first place, let alone keep up with it. But I use it every day, love it, and um, it's it's a lot of fun to kind of play around with the rankings of the adjusted offense, defense, the tempo. I I love the fast pace, up pace, you know, tempo game. Of course, obviously, um, so it's fun to see like a U of A. It's a two and a five, and then adjusted defense, and they're five and adjusted. Kind of see those teams are in the top ten in both categories, and then it it. For me, it's a very pleasing brand of basketball when they're kind of in both of those those areas. Right. I would I would say that, you know, that's definitely kind of the way I use the site as well, is find those teams that whose style I, I like or, or want to watch and, and dig deeper and, and try to catch a game or something when they're playing. So uh, with 362 teams, I can't just detect that by watching games on my own. Like I, I need a, a resource for that. And that's kind of that was the inspiration behind the site. Well, hey, I appreciate the time. Thanks for for all the time. I enjoyed the seven minute conversation. Now I've enjoyed the like the the hour long conversation. So we'll have to do it again. But I'm sure we'll bump into each other again down the road throughout the season and maybe up at the WAC tournament. But Ken, thanks so much. It's just uh, KenPalm.com. That's all they got to know, right? Just head to the that, site. Absolutely, that's it. Go there and uh, 
proceed to uh, buy a, uh, a subscription if you, if you would like. Yeah, I would recommend you buy. I mean, based on the price you said, it's it's very inexpensive, and and you do get a lot more information um, when you buy the subscription. You can really dig down and everything. So, kinpom.com. Hey, Ken, thanks so much. We'll see you down the road. All right, thanks, Michael. Appreciate it.